Well, good morning. My name is Mark Ralston, and I'm a pediatrician in Oak Harbor, Washington, and I work at a level two nursery. And the title of my talk today is Innovative Evidence-Based Neonatal Care. Now, that sounds like a, it's going to be a very high-tech talk, but I want to reassure you that what I, the majority of what I um, offer to you today can be applied to the mission field. So taking care of neonates out there with limited resources. So we'll try not to get too technical. There are some evidence-based studies that are pertinent to the mission field, to uh, low- and middle-income countries around the world. Not a lot. There are some emerging technologies that we use to take care of neonates in, de in developed countries that are now uh, on, the, on the verge of being um, ready for the developing world. So that's exciting. And those are the kinds of things that I want to focus on today so that we can take care of every one of these neonates. So I want to welcome you here this morning. And I do have a handout. And so um, if, if you could just... And if, at, if we run out, if uh, someone could just ask the staff to get... Um, could you just take that over to the other side there? To uh, make... Um, copies. And that, that is the updated uh, 2015 NRP guidelines from the American Heart Association that, as you know, um, were published on October 15th. So we're going to go over those guidelines as well. So we'll update you on what is the latest from ILCOR, the um, International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation, and um, the American Heart Association that takes those international um, consensus guidelines and, and puts out their own American Heart Association guidelines that drives our NRP course. So, so we're going to look um, briefly at a few topics today, and my objectives are to uh, make you aware of the causes of global neonatal mortality. And as I said, we're going to uh, go over the latest changes um, and some of the new data behind some of the 2010 guidelines um, from the American Heart Association. We're going to look at uh, the few studies out there that are pertinent to neonatal resuscitation for resource-limited settings. And we're going to, as I said, look at some of that emerging technology to take care of newborns in resource-limited settings. I'd like to start with Scripture for you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. David the psalmist knew the, uh, the wonder of God's creation. And especially, he mentions the creation of the unborn child. And too many of these children, these neonates, are dying globally around the world. And the a to the total of the under five mortality um, in 2013 was 6.3 million, and that's the latest pie chart that we have of what's going on with under five mortality. 6.3 million. The greatest number of those children under five are neonates, accounting for 44%. So the no total neonatal deaths are about 2.8 million every single year. So if we're going to impact under five mortality, if we could focus on taking care of that newborn child, that would severely impact, reduce under five mortality worldwide. Remember, 98 to 99% of children born, including neonates, born uh, worldwide die in low and middle income countries. So the very places where you may are working or may want to work, um, it has the greatest impact to reduce under five mortality. Of these neonatal deaths, 965,000 die because they are premature or due to complications of prematurity. 662,000 neonates die due to intrapartum-related events formerly known as birth asphyxia. 421,000 neonates die of sepsis. And then 
4% of, of under-5 mortality is due to congenital abnormalities and 4% uh, due to other neonate neonatal disorders and 1% due to tetanus. So if you're focusing on the right side of that pie chart there, the neonatal deaths, 2.8 million. And so there are educational programs that have been developed uh, to attack, to address some of these major causes of neonatal mortality. How many of you are familiar with the Helping Babies Breathe program? Okay. How many of you have participated in teaching that? Overseas. Okay. So this is a program, and there's the website. If you get on to helpingbabiesbreathe.org, it's a program of the American Heart Associate, uh, um, American Academy of Pediatrics that is designed to, to uh, um, look at those neonates who, um, have, who need to breathe. 99% of neonates um, need just up through bag mass ventilation in order to survive. So this program, so le- that means less than 1% need advanced care. So you're perfectly set up to be able to take care of 99% of neonates who just need a bag mask ventilator, a resuscitator, and a suction bulb. You're on the mission field. You're perfectly set up to take care of 99% of newborns, okay? Less than 1% need endotracheal intubation, chest compressions, epinephrine. Okay, so this Helping Babies Breathe program was, was um, introduced in 2010, and now there's over, well over 100,000 birth attendants worldwide who have been trained to give um, simple, basic, neonatal resuscitation up through bag mass ventilation um, worldwide over in well over 60 countries. It's really gone viral. The reason is that the materials are pictorial. They're very simple. Um, They are able to be used by um, birth attendants who are illiterate, essentially, and uh, but realize who are invested in their own communities. So it's a very grassroots level program that has gone around the world. So if you're interested in this program, get on this website and take a look at the, the success stories worldwide. It also, uh, the, the bottom line, as we should say, is what are the outcomes based on this educational program? So what if we have a... Um, a new education, a new course. There's plenty of life resuscitation courses out there, aren't there? But so what? What is the bottom line? One bottom line is that it has already, in Tanzania, reduced 24-hour neonatal mortality rate by 47%. So there's there's a solid outcome for you. And it is really a a very valuable course. At Lairdal... Uh, participates in, uh, with the American Academy of Pediatrics in producing the uh, simulator Neonatalie. And that weighs about, if you fill that simulator with water, it weighs about two kilos. So it simulates the weight of a newborn baby. And um, you can bag mass ventilate it. You can simulate an umbilical heart rate, um, an umbilical pulse. You can... Uh, uh, make it cry, etc., at the appropriate time to create a, re- a very sim- realistic simulation of a, a newborn scenario. So, uh, and it also, Lerdo also makes this uh, bag mask uh, ventilator that can be autoclave, boiled, and reused up to a certain point. So, uh, there's a second, there's actually three courses that have been produced now by the American Academy of Pediatrics under the uh, umbrella name of Helping Babies Survive. I've already told you about Helping Babies Breathe. So now there is something beyond Helping Babies Breathe. They've now been resuscitated. Now they need essential newborn care in it and kangaroo mother care, and you're probably familiar with those terms. Now those terms have been 
put into this course essential care for every baby. And again, the the beauty of these courses is that they, the uh, the resources are very simple. They're very they're pictorial. Uh, they, they they tell the story of what to do with um, pictures. And uh, so you. You want to um, get on to the Helping Babies Breathe website, and under course con- courses conducted, you can also now look up uh, essential care for every baby. And so, what does this course entail? It, it um, entails um, initiating breastfeeding immediately, uh, disease prevention, eye care, cord care, um, vitamin K, uh, temperature maintenance. Uh, weighing the baby. Then they have this tricolor division that they use throughout all of these courses. Is um, to the left is the is the green for normal or routine care. In the middle is yellow for is there a problem, and on the right um, are there danger signs. And you all we always want to be on the lookout, don't we, for danger signs in in uh, taking care of neonates. Uh, there are flip charts, and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great resource. <clears throat> the third course in Helping Babies Survive, Helping Babies Breathe, Essential Care for Every Baby, and now there's Essential Care for Small Babies, because remember, the greatest number of neonates who die are preterm. So now there is, this is the most recent course that has come out, and <clears throat> it uh, deals with several... Um, major topics, infection prevention, thermal support, and there's actually an obstructive, uh, objective structured clinical evaluation, OSCE-A, of skin to skin. So you practice some of these um, uh, important points of thermal support, talking about um, incubator support and then using the radiant warmer. There's a nutrition module which um, goes over breastfeeding, Breast milk expression and NG2 placement, and that's an OSCE B there. Daily assessment and transport for advanced care. So these courses, um, this one also has its own simulator and um, are very, very valuable to address the large percentage of neonates worldwide who die due to prematurity. So 1% of all Children under five die of tetanus. So there is, here's an example of a randomized controlled trial that has, um, was conducted in Pakistan um, that um, helps us to take care of neonatal tetanus. And they compared intramuscular equine-derived anti-tetanus serum alone to the intrathecal lyophilized human tetanus immunoglobulin plus the equine anti-tetanus serum and showed that if you, if you um, perform a lumbar puncture and infuse this immunoglobulin in addition to the IM treatment that you can reduce neonatal mortality and mean hospital length of stay significantly. So that's, that helps us in our care of neonates who um, have tetanus. Of course, we want to take care of that cord, ca- cord so that essential care for every baby is is vital, and also we want to start antibiotics, metronidazole, penicillin for tetanus, but the uh, antitoxin saves lives. So here is a randomized controlled trial, the best kind of study performed in a limited resource setting that helps us to take care of neonatal tetanus. And so, as I've said, the um, AHA guidelines for 2015 have just been released. They have been published in the journal Pediatrics, and here are the two references where you can go and look at these guidelines point by point and and look at all the references behind this um, consensus and evidence-based, these um, um, evidence-based decisions. The uh, NRP Steering Committee has prepared summaries of the guidelines in English and in Spanish, and those references are also available on this talk. And January 1, 2017, is the NRP 7th edition implementation date. So the materials will be out, 
and we should be teaching that in our NRP courses. How many of you are involved in teaching the NRP course? Okay. So you, you know what, what I'm talking about. So, new for 2015, delayed cord clamping for 30 to 60 seconds is suggested for term and preterm infants not requiring resuscitation due to the fact that it is associated with less interventricular hemorrhage, higher blood pressure and blood volume, less need for transfusion, and less um, necrotizing enterocolitis. The only negative consequence of delayed cord clamping is a slightly increased level of bilirubin associated with more need for phototherapy. There is insufficient evidence to support or refute delayed cord clamping in infants requiring resuscitation. So that the jury is still out on that. But for those who do not require resuscitation, that it helps that neonate to delay that clamping of the cord after that baby is delivered vaginally. And there is some literature. They don't really talk about C-section, um, elective C-sections, <clears throat> but there is some literature that supports that as well. Maintaining um, temperature, new for 2015, admission temperature should be recorded as a predictor of outcomes as well as a quality indicator. The temperature of the newly born non-asphyxiated infant should be maintained between 36.5 and 37.5 degrees centigrade after birth through admission and stabilization. Hyperthermia, a temperature greater, or, uh, greater than 38 degrees centigrade, should be avoided due to potential associated risks. If you have any questions during this talk, just feel free and we can focus your question on what we've just talked about. So I don't mind if you have questions about any of what I've said. Is there any questions so far about what I've said? Yes. Um, how available is the, the people in the body? Uh, not that available. So the equine antitoxin is most widely available. It's equal to the immunoglobulin, but it's, but the, uh, as I said, the, um, the immunoglobulin, even given IM, is not as available as the equine. But, yes. Okay. All right, so we're good so far. Okay, so new for 2015, in preparation for the birth of a preterm newborn, increase the room temperature to approximately 23 degrees to 25 degrees centigrade, so about 18 to 21 degrees um, uh, Fahrenheit, and uh, if, if, which is 18 to 21 degrees is a, is a normal room temperature, excuse me. And also new for 2015, if the anticipated gestation is premature, less than 32 weeks, use of radiant warmers and plastic wrap with a cap has improved but not eliminated the risk of hypothermia. Various combinations of strategies, also including increased room temperature, thermal mattresses, and use of warm humidified gases may be reasonable to prevent hypothermia. So the premature infant is especially <clears throat> at increased risk for developing hypothermia. So you want to be very careful in preventing, maintaining normal body temperature and uh, preventing hypothermia. So new for 2015, um, <clears throat> there is, if we look um, at the bottom, there's insufficient current evidence to re recommend a preference for either slow or rapid rewarming. Either approach may be reasonable. And, our tr and looking at the top, traditional recommendations for rewarming hypothermic infants, and those are the infants are th that are less than 36 degrees centigrade after resuscitation has been either slow, um, which is less than 0.5 degrees centigrade per hour, um, has been deemed to be preferable to fast, rapid rewarming that is a greater or equal to 0.5 degrees centigrade per hour to avoid complications. And those complications include apnea or arrhythmia. But now with the new evidence, um, slow rewarming 
preferable to fast rewarming, which was the previous recommendation. There's insufficient evidence actually to choose among those two. New for 2015, in resource-limited settings to maintain temperature or prevent hypothermia during transition, uh, which is birth until one to two hours of life in well infants, it may be reasonable to put infants in a clean food-grade plastic bag up to the level of the neck and swaddle them after drying. Another option may be reasonable um, is to nurse such newborns with skin-to-skin contact or kangaroo mother care. So here is one of a number of low-cost options, a low-cost infant warmer called Embrace. There's the website. Uh, that is essentially a miniature sleeping bag. It requires a power source, and a temperature heater warms this warm pack to 37 degrees centigrade, and the warm pack stays at temperature for six hours. Now, I'm not endorsing this. You can get online and look at other low-cost warmers, but there, here is something that for less than $200 can help you warm that infant. The Incu blanket is, um, does not require a power source. It's cheaper, and it keeps infants warm for about 3.5 to 8 hours. All right, now here's one of the most um, maybe controversial or the, the biggest changes in the uh, 2015 AHA guidelines. When amniotic fluid is clear, this is what we currently do. When amniotic fluid is clear, suctioning immediately following birth, including suction with a bulb syringe, should be reserved for infants with obvious obstruction to spontaneous breathing or who require positive pressure ventilation. So it's, if the amniotic fluid is clear, uh, the obstetrician should, or family doctor, whoever is delivering, or the birth attendant, um, should limit the amount of OPNP suctioning because there are some complications doing, due to suctioning, for example, bradycardia. But new for 2015, intubation for tracheal suctioning in the non-vigorous infant born through meconium stain amniotic fluid is not recommended. So how, how many of you does this um, impact? How many of you are called in the middle of the night to go to the delivery of a baby whose amniotic fluid is meconium stained? Okay. So we no longer need to tracheally suction these infants who are non born non-vigorously. A randomized trial uh, 10 years ago took us away from suctioning the vigorous infant who were more awake than we were during at 3 in the morning. <laughs> so as we were trying to fight this baby and get the tube into their trachea, a, a multi-center international randomized controlled trial said it didn't make any difference if the baby was vigorous. Now, the AHA is saying if the baby is non-vigorous, we don't need to suction that trachea anymore. All we need to do is resuscitation should proceed as needed. So we just need to do what we do with every single baby. If they need resuscitation, proceed onward with resuscitation. If we bring them over to the radiant warmer um, and uh, we proceed as we would do for any baby who did not have meconium-stained amniotic fluid. Okay? Um, however, meconium-stained amniotic fluid is a perinatal risk factor which requires the presence of, presence of one team member with endotracheal intubation skills. So, all right. So, we'll, so, right. So, oh my goodness. I was, uh, I was doing well all the way up to that point. <laughs> and we probably know about these non-vigorous babies who really needed our presence. So it is the presence of meconium in that amniotic fluid is a perinatal risk factor. So it's, it's um, 
we need to be there to perform that routine resuscitation. And if they are truly obs- their trachea is truly obstructed, we're going to find that out and we're going to intubate that trachea. But to perform obligate tracheal suctioning up front on all these babies pre-stimulation is is gone. Okay. Yes. There is no randomized controlled trial yet. So they just made, there are risks to intubation and there's insufficient evidence to say that, and we know that all this tracheal suction that we've been doing all these years and years and years has not, not reduced the incidence of what? Meconium aspiration syndrome. So in the absence of a randomized controlled trial, they have still come out to say we don't need to suction the trachea. You, you need to bring that baby to the warmer and proceed as you would ordinarily. You would dry that baby, stimulate that baby, suction that baby, remember, and uh, just proceed onward and then apply your principles of neonatal resuscitation. But you do not, you no longer are um, required to, the first step, remember the, the inverted pyramid, is we, we, we um, suction the trachea first and then we start with that um, pyramid. Does that, am I making myself clear? We need to just use routine resuscitation principles. We do not need to start that or interrupt that with first suctioning that trachea. Yes, Does, did I answer your question? Yeah, there's really no evidence. There is no evidence. We need a randomized controlled trial. And I imagine that's being done. But they are, we, in 2010, they said there's really, we're, we need a randomized trial. And there's no real... We haven't, we're not really making any reduction in the, the worst case scenario, which is meconium aspiration syndrome. But still do it. Now they say you don't have to do it. Just resuscitate that baby the way you ordinarily would without a randomized controlled trial. But you need, someone needs to be there who is able, these babies are sicker, they're non-vigorous. So I think so they, they need the presence of someone who that resuscitation might require down the road intertracheal intubation. So someone with skills of intertracheal intubation need to be there. So good news and bad news. You could, you could still use pressure yes, yes, yes. Just just simplify everything. Just just you just handle that baby. Yes, that baby has meconium in the amniotic fluid, but handle that baby like you would do a baby without um, meconium in the amniotic fluid. Any other questions on that? Okay. So, indications for pulse oximetry are uh, resuscitation is anticipated. Positive pressure ventilation is administered. Central cyanosis persists beyond the first five to ten minutes of life, or supplementary oxygen is used. So instead of the old paradigm slapping on the oxygen, for last iteration in 2010, it was slap on the pulse oximeter. That was the biggest change in my practice, as I, for and for these indications. So it's not there's no mystery of when we should use pulse oximetry. We should have it there at the bedside. And um, for these indications, we should use it. And so new for 2015, a three-lead electronic cardiac monitor with chest or limb leads provides rapid and reliable method of continually displaying the heart rate. So that's probably not too new that when we're going to hook a baby that's sick up to monitors, we choose a pulse oximeter and a cardiac monitor. And also, we probably know that our clinical assessment of the heart rate 
in a newborn is not always accurate. You know, checking the umbilical pulse or even the precordial uh, heart rate with a stethoscope is not always accurate. It's over underestimated. And so the gold standard, as soon as we get that baby who needs it onto a, uh, the cardiac monitor, then we see that recording. It also helps us look at the reliability of our pulse oximeter, doesn't it? Because if that heart rate on that pulse oximeter isn't correlating with the heart rate on that cardiac monitor, then we can't trust the saturation on our pulse oximeter. And some babies that are severely anemic, etc., we can't even get a good SAT for quite a while. So we need to get that baby who needs that um, onto a uh, cardiac monitor. We just need the limb leads. Um, new for 2015 in asystolic, bradycardic, neonates, routine use of any single feedback device such as pulse oximetry or end tidal CO2 monitor for detect- detection of return of spontaneous circulation is not suggested as their usefulness for this purpose has not been well established. So there is a moyofetal heart rate monitor that's been put out by Laridol. They're the ones that produce all these simulation products for the Helping Babies Survive courses. And they've produced this fetal heart rate monitor for a relatively low cost that monitors baby's heart rate, mom's heart rate, has fetal alarms, heart rate alarms. So uh, that's uh, fairly new for you. Back to the guidelines. <clears throat> when the baby needs resuscitation, that begins um, with uh, room air, 21% if the baby is late preterm or term. So we knew that from last iteration of the guidelines. We can use, we don't have to put them on 100% oxygen with all those toxic oxygen radicals. We can put the late preterm and the, um, the term babies on room air. We just need to create functional residual capacity. We need to open up those alveoli. That's all we need to do. And we can do that with gas. We do not need to, we do not need to use oxygen. But new for 2015, um, use, what was not clear in the last iteration was when, when they do need oxygen, do we start high and work down on that blender? Or do we start low and work up? And here they have given us a consensus guideline that says we can work low. We can use that oxygen blender, which is blending 100% oxygen with room air to give us a FiO2 of 21 to 30% if the baby is preterm, less than 35 weeks gestation. They do not recommend starting at greater than 65 FiO2. And then titrate according to your target preductal saturations, and we'll get to that. Very good. If you have questions, just interrupt, and we'll just go um, with that, these questions. <clears throat> it, new for 2015, if breathing, if the baby is breathing, spontaneously breathing, so the baby has a heart rate but this um, SpO2 is not within the target range, and I'm going to show you those again. Um, Start free flow oxygen at 30%, so start low versus starting high. We always want to turn it, crank it all the way up to 100%, and then work down, titrating it to our preductal saturations, but we don't need to do that. We can start low. We're not giving PPV. We're just giving free flow oxygen here, okay? Um, and we adjust the flow. We turn the flow up to about 10 liters per minute. And then we use that blender to adjust the FiO2, which is the fractional inspired concentration of oxygen, as needed to, pr- to achieve preductal saturations of healthy term infants after vaginal, vaginal birth at sea level. Okay. If the newborn has labored breathing or an SpO2 that cannot be maintained within the target range despite the 100%, we've cranked it up, they're not maintaining the saturation that we need, which is in the target range, um, then consider, despite turning it up to 100%, then consider a trial of CPAP. 
The FiO2 should be increased if we're to 100% when we're doing chest compressions. I think that's um, understandable. And to reduce the risk of complications associated with hyperoxia, the FiO2 should, as soon as we can, wean as soon as possible. As soon as possible. Okay. After initial steps, positive pressure ventilation. So we're using an uh, anesthesia bag. We're using a self-inflating bag. We're using a T-piece resuscitator. The indications for positive pressure ventilation are apnea, gasping, heart rate less than 100. That's not anything new. We've heard that. We consider a trial of PPV if the baby is spontaneously breathing, has a heart rate greater than 100, but the saturation cannot be maintained despite free flow oxygen or CPAP. So we tried free flow oxygen with a nasal cannula. Then we tried CPAP. Now that's not working. We're not within our target range, now we can trial, try um, actually giving peak inspiratory pressure, positive pressure ventilation. And um, I'll get to you. And the PPD can be delivered effectively with a flow inflating bag, a self-inflating bag, or the T-piece resuscitator. And, um, but the resuscitators are insensitive to changes in lung compliance, so that we like to use that bag to feel the, the compliance of the lungs. Yes. Can you what? Yes, yes. Use room air. Yes. So here's these targeted preductal saturations after birth. And preductal, it's not contaminated with deoxygenated blood across the ductus. That's why we focus on the right wrist or hand is a preductal location. Every other extremity is postductal. So these are, remember, this study helped change my practice because at 10 minutes of life down here, the baby might have a saturation of 85%, and it's, oh, it, everything's going to be, oh, okay. I don't have to panic anymore. So, the what? You don't panic about that, other things. You're panicking about other things. And these are term babies at sea level. So... And we're extrapolating, but we, at least there's some evidence. But if you do not have oxygen, we're, ta- we're going to talk about that. So for some of the limited resource settings, what do we do? And the answer is we use room air. Because remember, we want to op- create FRC. We want to open up those alveoli and keep them open with positive pressure. It's not positive pressure plus O2. It's positive pressure. Good. So we had, for when giving PPV, we adjust the flow meter to 10 liters per minute. And none of this is, is, you know all of this. Initial ventilation pressure, 20 to 25 centimeters of water, but greater and equal to 30 to 40 centimeters of water may be required in some infants. We adjust our peak to 5 centimeters of water. We deliver ventilation at a rate of 46, 40 to 60 breaths per minute. And if PPV is required for the resuscitation, it says here in the guidelines of a preterm of any newborn adjusted, use a device that can provide PEEP to maintain that FRC. So term, preterm, term. That the, the main thing is if you're using that wonderful self-inflating bag that you can use anywhere, it's, you don't need to be tied to a gas source, the PEEP valve you can't really trust. So if you want to use deliver PEEP, which is positive end expiratory pressure. You've worked hard to open those lungs. Now you want to maintain it with a certain level of end expiratory pressure. Don't use a self... I mean, if that's all you have, that's fine, but don't use a, a PEEP valve. Um, don't use some uh, a device that you cannot trust the PEEP valve, which is the self-inflating bag. You want to use a T-piece resuscitator or the, the um, anesthesia bag. Okay, the most important indicator of successful PPV is a rising heart rate. If the heart rate does not increase, uh, PPV that inflates the lung is evidenced by chest movement with ventilation. If you're attempting PPV but the baby is not improving and the chest is not moving despite performing each of the ventilation corrective steps, Mr. SOPA, which is readjusting the mask, uh, repositioning the airway, suctioning, opening the mouth, giving a little bit more pressure, and then using an alternate airway 
including intubation, the trachea may be obstructed by thick secretions. Then suction the trachea with a, using a suction catheter inserted through the endotracheal tube or then use your meconium aspirator. Directly suction the trachea with a meconium aspirator. So here's a um, some technology that has been uh, introduced by Lairdal again, and it's an upright newborn bag mask. It's easier to hold. Uh, the downward pressure onto the mask enables a better mask seal. There are new sizes of newborn masks, size 0 to N1, and it has a larger bag volume, 320 milliliters versus 220 to 250 mLs on other resuscitators. So you can go onto their website and for very low cost. And if you're working in an MDG4, Millennium Development Goal 4 country, they will give these things at at cost. So it's it's uh, like $15 for these things. Okay. Um, continuous positive end uh, airway pressure or CPAP, a resuscitation device capable of providing PEEP and CPAP such as a T-piece resuscitator or a flow inflating bag is preferred. And new for 2015, spontaneously breathing preterm infants with respiratory distress may be supported with with PPV by CPAP initially rather than routine intubation. So the, now there's three randomized controlled trials with pre, in preterm infants where use of initial use of CPAP has decreased the amount of endotracheal intubation and um, mechanical, and it reduced the length of mechanical ventilation. So we can try, give them a trial of CPAP versus the, just Every preterm, they need intubation. So that's helpful. So in a limited resource settings, there are a number of uh, technologies and, uh, to deliver CPAP. So you can put uh, a nasal cannula off of an oxygen tank and uh, on, put one in and uh, connect it to the oxygen tank, not blended with air, but direct 100% oxygen and the other end of the, uh, the cannula into a, a water bottle with a five centimeters of water and give five centimeters of CPAP. Now you're going to give 100% oxygen. So we've just, in keeping with the guidelines that we can start low in our FiO2, you can, there are uh, devices out there. These are all, um, this device was um, used in Malawi where you're now using an oxygen concentrator or uh, a tank and blending it with an air compressor. Now you need a power source. Uh, you have a wide piece. You need flow meters to adjust the flow, but you're blending oxygen and uh, room air, and you have a patient interface, typically by nasal prongs, and then your um, pressure regulator, which is your water bottle, and the, the tube is put into five centimeters of water. So here are your recipes for delivering 60% FiO2 and 37% FiO2, and you're set, setting the flows. So you can get very, very simple, but you're giving 100% oxygen. You can get more complex um, and blend. Here's an even more complex um, way to deliver uh, bubble CPAP, which is what we're talking about. Uh, for about $350. And again, you have your blending on the left, um, your air and your oxygen, and uh, you have your pressure regulator there, uh, that water column, and the mean pressure is determined by the height of water column in centimeters, and then your patient interface. Uh, but there are new technologies out there that are uh, co companies, institute, um, universities that are uh, coming up with simpler ways, cheaper ways to deliver bubble CPAP. And uh, we know, and why? Because we know that bubble CPAP is safe, has been, we know it, we use it in developed countries. But we also, there's now a body of literature that, and that tells us that, that shows us that bubble CPAP is safe and effective for neonatal respiratory distress in resource-limited settings. But there are barriers to Im implementation, and those barriers are the cost. Um, no one knows how to use it, and there's really no guidelines. So 
Um, in Malawi, there, they came up with an algorithm for initiating bubble CPAP in neonates with respiratory distress at Queen Elizabeth Central Hospital. And the, this algorithm, the standard was uh, set by, developed by neo, the neonatologists. And then they asked uh, nurses and pediatric residents to try and follow this algorithm. And they showed that there was high um, inter-rater reliability. So uh, we start with, uh, at the top box, the baby is breathing, the heart rate is greater than 100, um, and the weight is greater than or equal to 1 kilo. If the heart rate is less than 100, then we're doing resuscitation. So the next box we go to is what they look, we look at the tone. They looked at the tone because tone is an indicator of HIE, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. So on the right, if the tone is poor, the baby is floppy, there's a high chance that this baby is birth asphyxiated, has, has HIE. And we know, and they put these babies on oxygen if they were hypoxemic. The pulse oximetry is less than 90. But we, they did not use the, re, the precious limited resources of CPAP to try and treat a baby who has been birth as, asphyxiated. So they were conserving resources there. Because we know that if we put a baby on CPAP that is um, severely birth asphyxiated, it's not going to... Uh, affect their ultimate outcome of survival um, and intact survival, if they do survive. So on the left side, if the baby's tone is good, the baby is active, then they look whether the baby was um, under 1.3 kilos and premature uh, uh, or less than 30 weeks by exam. And then in those babies, they try early CPAP because there's limited mechanical ventilators out there for these, for these uh, premature babies. So try CPAP early. Um, if the baby is greater than 1.3 kilos and the baby um, has uh, respiratory distress with a pulse ox, um, reading less than 90, in other words, they're hypoxemia, you can try uh, a trial of free-flow oxygen, and then if that doesn't work, try CPAP. So here is an example of some of the uh, technology that's emerging, an oxygen blender, a low-cost oxygen blender to blend uh, that room air with 100% oxygen. So those things are on their way. Uh, if you do not have oxygen, there are technologies out there where you can, um, that, for example, this Inspire low-cost breathing assistant that just uses room air. It's all the same principles. You just aren't blending oxygen. This can blend oxygen if it needs to, but it can, it can be used just uh, with room air at a very low cost, $200. And it's a uh, small size. Um, glucose, IV glucose separ- uh, infusion should be considered as soon as practical after resuscitation with the goal of avoiding hypoglycemia. Now here's an, one of these um, randomized controlled trial that have been performed that really help us in taking care of neonates in limited resource settings. This is a a double-blind placebo-controlled sugar babies trial. They um, looked, um, treated babies who were late preterm to term, who were less than 48 hours of life and hypoglycemic, and they gave them a dextrose gel versus a placebo gel that they massaged into the buccal mucosa, then orally fed. And the primary outcome was a blood glucose less than 2.6 millimoles per liter, which is about 45 milligram per deciliter. And they showed that sublingual dextrose reduces treatment failures compared to placebo significantly. So think about sublingual dextrose. It is equal to IV dextrose, which is what we're going to commonly go to anyway in terms of uh, the onset of, of action, and it um, works faster than oral glucose. So um, think about sublingual de- dextrose when you have a hypoglycemic baby. And you may, if you, after you orally feed, you may want to continue with uh, sublingual dextrose because, as I say, it's as, it has equal onset of action as IV. So um, before uh, we... For infants greater than 36 weeks of gestation with evolving moderate to severe HIE, um, 
These babies should be offered therapeutic hypothermia under clearly defined evidence-based protocols and facilities with capabilities for care and follow-up. The new guideline is that consider doing that in a resource-limited settings. You may There may be some limitation of options and do try to do that to the best of your ability under, uh, under evidence-based protocols and facilities with capabilities for care and follow-up. So do the best you can. So if you have an asphyxiated baby, um, what do you do? Well, you turn, you get them off the radiant warmer if you have one, um, and it takes about a half an hour or so, or so to achieve the target temperature of 33.5 uh, degrees centigrade, and you, you um, support that baby. Um, the guidelines give um, uh, guidance for withholding resuscitation. If responsible physicians believe that newborn has no chance of survival, initiation of resuscitation is not an ethical treatment option should not be offered. And For example, for confirmed gestation less than 22 weeks and some congenital malformations or chromosomal abnormalities like anencephaly or trisomy 13. In conditions associated with high mortality or morbidity, caregivers should, be, should allow the parents to participate in decisions whether resuscitation is in their baby's interest. And again, for gestations 22 to 24 weeks and some serious congenital and chromosomal abnormalities. If, so new for 2015, in infants with an APGAR score of zero after 10 minutes of resuscitation, if the heart rate remains undetectable, it may be reasonable to stop assisted ventilation, but the decision must be individualized. Variables to be considered may include whether resuscitation was optimal, there's availability of advanced neonatal care, for example, this therapeutic hypothermia, specific instances before delivery, um, for example, known timing of the insult and wishes expressed by the family. So now um, we're going to quickly talk about uh, resuscitation that affects less than 1% of babies worldwide. And uh, new for 2015, the um, size 4.0 ET tube is no longer listed on the NRP quick, quick equipment um, checklist. And use your vocal cord guide uh, to indicate the correct insertion depth. There's an, a tip-to-lip measurement, um, and you can follow the initial endotracheal tube insertion depth table, or you can measure the na- nasal tragus length, and you just add a centimeter to that length. Uh, there's really no new changes regarding exhaled CO2 detectors. They're recommended as a confirmation of ET2 placement, and they can be used in low birth weight infants. LMAs are, can achieve effective ventilation for babies beyond 34 weeks of gestation. Um, the data are limited less than 34 weeks or less than 2,000 grams, but consider them in infants greater than 34 weeks. When you, before you, if intubation trial is unsuccessful, or even um, if your PPV trial, before you've intubated, um, think about an LMA. There's really no new changes for chest compressions, um, and I will, um, so if you, they're indicated if the heart rate is less than 60 after 30 seconds of PPV, and use the lower third of the sternum and compressed to a depth of one-third AP diameter. Use the two thumbs encircling hands method. That's preferable to the two two fingers technique. It gives higher blood pressure and cerebral perfusion pressure with less rescuer fatigue. Um, And you can deliver the chest compressions at the head of the baby. So um, while someone is putting the UV line in or another, an IV, so uh, it, uh, you, can, you can still use that two, thir- two thumbs encircling hands technique despite other resuscitative techniques that are ongoing. And continue chest compressions for 60 seconds prior, uh, prior to checking a heart rate. The ratios are the same, three to one. Uh, 90 compressions, 30 breaths to achieve 120 breath, uh, events per minute. Use higher ratios if there's a cardiac origin and continued uh, coordinated um, chest compressions and ventilations. There's not this change to continuous ventilations like we do in PALS yet. 
until there's data. Use your UVC. It's the preferred, preferred method of vascular access, but IO root is just is equal. Thank you. Equal to uh, UV for any fluids or medications. The doses of epi are the same. It's 1 to 10,000, uh, 0.1 milligram per ml. Um, for if the heart rate remains less than 60 after at least 30 seconds of PPV, that inflates the lungs. And um, preferably through a properly um, inserted ET tube or LMA and another 60 seconds of chest compressions coordinated with PPV using 100% oxygen. And um, the IV route is preferred. If you can't get an IV in, then you can use a dose, a higher dose through the ET tube. And if that dose is not working, then you can, and you get your IV or your IO in, then you can get, don't wait for three to five seconds excuse me, minutes after the endotracheal dose, go ahead and give your dose um, IV or IO. Uh, volume expansion is considered when blood loss is known or suspected, a pale, pale skin, poor perfusion, weak pulses, and the heart rate is not responded to. Resuscitative measures where um, use normal saline or Typo RH negative blood, uh, do not use uh, lactated ringers. It's not compatible with blood. And it has electrolytes that may not be needed. And the dose is the same. It's 10 per kilo. And avoid giving volume rapidly in preterm infants due to IVH. Um, don't use bicarb routinely. Uh, don't use a naloxone due to, uh, routinely due to animal studies and complications and think about surfactant if you have a preterm infant. So here's your algorithm, um, which uh, we've essentially covered. It's in your handout. And uh, for the sake of time, we'll just um, that summarizes everything that we've talked about, talked about the priorities. Um, it's been shown, we're finishing up here on the guidelines, that we need NRP training at more than every two years. Uh, we're all adult learners. And we need um, to be reintroduced um, to this material um, more frequently than er every two years. Just going to finish up in the last few minutes with some technologies that are out there to help us. The Pratt Pouch packages antiretrovirals to protect those babies born to HIV-positive mothers. They need this within 24 to 72 hours, but mothers give birth at home. They can't get to the health facility, so you can actually store this antiretroviral medicine, even anti-malarial medicine, uh, for up to 12 months, and you can get that. It's a foil packet, a polyethylene packet that can get this medicine, life-saving medicine to the, to the baby. Phototherapy, um, there are 6 million infants born every year that, need, that have severe jaundice that need phototherapy, so there are some... Uh, low-cost units, conventional units. Uh, there is a randomized trial that was just published in the New England Journal about using filtered sunlight, comparing it to conventional phototherapy. These, uh, this canopy um, is le um, is costs less than 200 that can treat six to eight babies. So that technology is emerging. Uh, a nipple shield delivery system. You can put your medicine, your antiretroviral medicine, your antimalarial medicine, and the baby breastfeeds. A mom is HIV positive. They get the, that, this life-saving medicine through this uh, nipple shield delivery system. And the Nifty Cup um, allows um, newborns who are unable uh, to breastfeed, and you can give breast milk. Um, that moves into this nice little reservoir and the, ba the infants lap it up. So think about that for those with cleft lip, cleft palate. So we, um, I'd like to finish just summarizing. There's 2.8 million neonates who die every year. We need to do something to treat, to um, uh, save these lives. So we've looked at the causes of neonatal mortality. We've looked at the neonatal um, resuscitation guidelines worldwide. These guidelines dictate care worldwide, but now they are including guidelines that are specific for resource-limited limit, settings. We've looked at precious, the precious little 
neonatal resuscitation literature that's pertinent to resource-limited settings. Uh, For example, the sublingual dextrose for hypoglycemia, bubble CPAP. And we've also looked at a few of the emerging technologies, especially the respiratory technologies, that are pertinent to resource-limited settings. And thank you very much.